Welcome to episode 56 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, today we'll be donning the title of Losers as we descend into the sewers for our second Stephen King adaptation of the year, It, Chapter 2. But first, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. You know, I was, this morning we were texting back and forth, you saw It, Chapter 2 last night. I saw it this morning at 11 a.m., and really all I was feeling was that two hours and 50 minutes of a clown horror movie was just really not what I was in the mood for. But I will say, I think I came out more positive than I than I went going in. So uh, that's no spoilers. Thing. No spoilers. Hey, I'm not spoiling anything. Yeah, uh, fair. I mean, two, two hours and 50 minutes is a big ask for any movie. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about why I think it's especially a big ask for a horror movie. Um, but it just seems like this is the trend nowadays. Uh, movies are just so much longer. Like it's looking the at, year of the long movie. For it really sure. is. Like next week we got the Goldfinch, which is two and a half hours. Ford versus Ferrari is two and a half hours. Irishman is three and a half hours. I mean, it's we got some long, long boys coming. So yeah, we don't even know how long uh, the la or um, Rise of Skywalker is yet. That could be really long. Well, yeah. So I on the Rise of Skywalker thing, there is something about how John Williams made two hours and twenty minutes worth of music. Yeah. And he says that there's music all the way through. So it's going to be at least two hours and 20 minutes long. Thrilling as this is, mm -hmm. we're not going to leave our surprise guest, not really a surprise, but our guest waiting in the rafters for much longer. Uh, because, Scott, we are very pleased today to have our favorite recurring guest back on the pod uh, to discuss It Chapter 2. You may remember her from our last Stephen King episode on which we reviewed Pet Cemetery. Now she's back for another Fright Fest. Uh, we've already talked about her coming on for Dr. Sleep to make it, uh, you know, the holy trinity this year of Stephen King adaptations. Until then, it's our pleasure to welcome back Danny Kunkel. What's up, Hi. Danny? How's it going? Hi, guys. Very excited to be back. Thank you for not banning me after my first go around. Really appreciate it. Not at all. <laughs> Although I have to say, you called me your favorite guest, but I know you guys have had, is his name Jay on a couple of times? So oh, I would be that. being Regular listener right there. But... If you mean it, you know, I'll, I'll take. Fair, We've talked fair. about uh, having like genre specialists on like, yeah. you know, when we do horror, when we do whatever. So like, you know, you're our horror, but also our Stephen King apparently expert right now. Though I'm not sure. Have you read a Stephen King book before? Not to dox you or anything. But. Okay. I haven't read the books, but I've seen many Stephen King sure. movies. And for right now, I'm fine with being at least somewhat of an expert. I'll take that title uh, happily. Cool. Uh, all right, guys. Well, without further ado, uh, why don't we get into the movie? Let's do it. It Chapter 2 picks up a mere 27 years after the events of the first film in which the ragtag Crescent Losers Club defeated, for the time being, the shape-shifting demon Pennywise, played by Bill Skarsgård. The Losers are now older, wiser, and enjoying their own lives until they get a call from Isaiah Mustafa's Mike Hanlon, the only member of the club to remain behind in their hometown of Derry, Maine. Mike greets them with distressing news. It has come back. Meanwhile, however, Bill, played by James McAvoy, is a successful writer in an unhappy marriage. Ben, played by Jay Ryan, has dropped his chubby figure and is running a lucrative company. Richie, played by Bill Hader, is a famous stand-up comedian. 
Eddie, played by James Ransom, is a businessman married to the second incarnation of his mother. And Bev, played by Jessica Chastain, is still is trapped in an abusive relationship. Uh, all of the losers return to Derry, however, still haunted by the ghosts of their childhood and once again have to face their fears if they're to defeat Pennywise and save not only future generations, but also themselves. Danny, we'll start with you. The first It was a huge blockbuster success, and the splashy cast only adds to the hype for this sequel. So my first simple question is, does It Chapter 2 float like the first, or does it sink? I think that I did like the sequel, but I still liked the first one better. Um, it, the first one was just so good that I think that the bar was set so high. And while the second one was good and I, I did like, you know, the kind of star-studded cast and everything like that, I just think it didn't quite live up to the hype. But if I had to pick between float and sink, I think that my ultimate vote would be float. It's treading water, I think, maybe is the most appropriate uh, phrase to use. Probably. All right, Scott, over to you. General impressions on this movie. You know, Scott, I think my <laughs> overarching feeling about this movie, I already alluded to it in, you know, when we were just warming up before we actually got into the movie here. And that is this movie is just long. It is really, really long. And I'm not saying that it doesn't necessarily earn some of its length. I think it does. I actually like this movie the further I've gotten away from it, I actually, I think usually I come down off a high from seeing a movie. I'll be the first to admit that. But with this one, I walked out of the theater a little bit unsatisfied with certain aspects of the character development, uh, both from, st I think there's problems at the beginning. Uh, there's some, but fewer problems in the middle. And then I have a couple qualms with the, with the ending notes that these characters get to get to leave on. But overall, I think I really enjoy this. The cast is fantastic. What I will say just to go ahead and bring up one of the points about character development in this movie that I that I questioned, and it comes from your intro about these characters being older and more wise. I'm not sure any of these characters are more wise. I mean, they're all definitely older, but they all seem to be, well, I shouldn't say all, at least half of them seem to be stuck in the same place that they were in Derry, Maine 27 years ago, which is a little bit befuddling, but maybe that's partly explained by the the fact that they've forgotten so much about their childhood after they've left yeah. Derry, which isn't a spoiler. That's something that comes out in the very first few minutes of the film. But yeah, I think there's a few of them. You know, you mentioned Bev. I think that is Eddie. They all seem like they're those two in particular seem like they're in the same place. I mean, Mike physically is is in the same place. I think that that's <laughs> less of a, I have less of a problem with his character development. But I think that there's quite a few of them who don't feel like they've moved on. Uh, I, you know, not physically, I guess, uh, um, spiritually, emotionally, mentally past that time, even though they can't remember it. And I thought that was an interesting way to start. I don't have the reference point of having read the novel. Of course, one of the all-time greats from Stephen King, but there, and I know being limited by the source material, there still felt like there were problems with that. And I don't know if that was part of trying to adapt this to screen, what was like an 800 or 900 page book, even in two parts, uh, or if that was a uh, just a function of the source material, what that was. But that was one of the things that I struggled with starting out, and we can get into some of the problems that I have at the end because those are a little bit more spoilery. But overall, I think the performances are really strong. Scott, I know, just to go ahead and, and out you on one of your opinions, you didn't like Bill Hader's performance that much in this movie. Eh. Yeah, okay, maybe we'll, maybe you've, you've softened on that take from when you posted a review on Letterboxd. But I really like this cast from top to bottom. I, at first, wasn't sure about Bill Hader, I'll be honest. I think that his character is one of those who is, is set up in a way that honestly, I really was 
concerned that I was going to be with this character for two hours and 50 minutes because he's really off-putting at the beginning. But he really grows on me even in spite of the awkward decisions I think maybe they made with his character. Again, not sure if that's coming from the source material or if it's coming from the adaptation. But Bill Hader really made the best of it. I think Jessica Chastain, as always, is really, really strong in her role. Uh, always, always a good time to see what it was like. They reported 200 gallons of blood were used in the making of this film, and almost all of them went yeah. onto Jessica Chastain, which is pretty crazy uh, and a little bit disturbing to say the least. I think it was pig's blood. I can't remember what it was, but I was I was reading about it before. Some Carrie flashbacks there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think the, the you know those two performances kind of lead the cast, but I think that that is you know also true of the other of the other specific members, including the kids who come back, and we get a little bit of them de-aged to make them look like. This was shot concurrently with the original film, even though it wasn't. And it was noticeable because I went and looked at some of the red carpet stuff. Or I guess it's not really red carpet, but the premiere stuff afterwards to see all them photographed together. And they look considerably younger in this movie than they do now, which I always mm -hmm. think is it's really funny to see. Because I don't know if we've seen that in movies with kids, even though it's only been one or two years, being de-aged to look more like they, they were in a movie that was only shot a couple years ago. So overall, I'm coming out net positive, but some of that middle part, I've talked a lot about the positive here, but some of that middle part drags on. There's so many scenes that if they aren't considered repetitive are adjacent to repetitive to the point where it seemed like everyone was doing the same thing. Of course, dealing with their own demons and, and coming to terms with their own history and present, but still, it, it, it really drew things out. Even the, even the ending too, you know, I thought a couple times the movie was about to end, but somehow... I don't know. I don't want to get into too spoiler here, but it just keeps dragging on for a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I definitely have a lot of problems with this movie. I think to to pick off piggyback on something that you said about uh, people being stagnant and maybe not having changed that much from the first movie. That's actually not something that bothered me because I do think that one of the themes of the movie is, uh, you know, e examining small town America and specifically like the cycles of violence and the cycles of abuse and everything uh, that come and go. And I think it's necessary to have them in the same place, right? Like, like I said, Eddie's married to his mother. Uh, Bev is once again in an abusive relationship. I but think that's not explored very much. But like those, those like no, minor it's not, plot it's not, I, are not explored. Okay. Yeah. And I agree with that. I just think the idea on paper makes sense yeah, um, sure. of them being in the same place. Cause part, part of what they're doing and trying to defeat Pennywise is break the cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that uh, that part worked for me. I definitely empathize with some of your other comments, though. I think that uh, the middle section in particular is very repetitive. Um, I don't think that like any of the sequences are like bad. It, it's just like no, they're not all, all. all of the parts on their own are individually good, but they don't add up to a good whole. Um, it, okay. it is repetitive. Is it, it is tiresome. Like if you if you take one of the scenes out, if you take the fifth one that we see out, then it's probably really good. But in the context of the movie, when you've just seen four scenes exactly like it beforehand, um, it's like it loses its its scary effect because you I mean, you know what's going to happen. And yes, OK, they're important for each character's development. I understand that. But like, I just feel like they could have expedited it. Maybe yeah. been a, there been a little characters. bit more. There yeah. are too many characters to been, offer for them to deal with. Been more efficient in how they told the story. And, you know, I think that the strongest part of this uh, franchise or, you know, these two movies and the especially the first movie, which I, I agree with with what Danny and Scott are both said that, that it's definitely the better movie um, is the interaction between the characters, the relationships between the characters were so good. And I think that what it chapter one did really well is build up those relationships. It took its time to get to the big scares. Honestly, if you, I, I rewatched it recently and I was surprised like how much story and build up we really get. I mean, obviously you have the first part with Georgie, but like before we get into the like really serious fun house scares and everything, 
you know, they spend some time building up these relationships and make you care about these characters. And I don't think that they did that in the second movie. And I think that they should have, because even though it's the same characters, they're in much different places than they were in the first movie to, to some extent. I mean, we talked about maybe how some of them are kind of in the same place, but 27 years have gone by. Well, they um, don't know each other anymore. I mean, to your point, even, right. even if they haven't changed that much, they don't know each other anymore. Right. Uh, and so I wanted more scenes of them together. And I think that's why for me, the first hour of the movie is pretty good. Um, like I, I enjoyed the first hour of the movie, seeing these characters come back to Derry, get acquainted with each other. But then, you know, to our point in the middle section, they separate all of the characters um, and have them go on their own adventures, which, um, you know, I, I wanted more of the the dynamic together. And I think they hammer that home nicely in the end to a, to good effect. I think in the last 10 minutes or so, they leave you on a nice emotional, you know, hearts, heartstring tugging moment. Uh, with all the characters, but um, it's a long slog to get there. And, uh, you know, disappointing because I think, again, there are a lot of really good parts to this movie, um, but they just didn't add up to a satisfying whole um, and definitely some some pacing problems. But uh, not not a complete loser, no pun intended. Uh, like I said, I think it starts strong, it ends strong. Uh, it's, you know, that meat in the middle of the burger that uh, is a little bit of a problem. Yeah, and, and to the point about the scares, I think this movie is significantly less scary than the first one. And I think that's because, to your point the, about the buildup, that Definitely. it doesn't have that buildup. It's you know almost from the opening scene, because the opening scene in this movie is not unlike the first, you know, it chapter one with, with someone being devoured by Pennywise. And one of the things that this movie does is even after that first scene, it doesn't then go and then start building your characters up. Like the, you know, the next scene or the scene after that immediately has another scare and you just get them sprinkled throughout to the point where you're desensitized to them almost by the end. I mean, maybe not everyone will be <laughs> the guy sitting next to me in the theater seemed to go through a cycle each time <laughs> that well, the people sitting big... next to us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I think that one of the things that this thing suffered from is not only re repetition within the format of the scenes that it was going through with each character, but even once you get to some of the more climactic moments, the scares that it was using were direct callbacks, if not the exact same scenes that you saw yeah. in the first film, which I understand what there was a purpose. And again, it might be the source, material. that's, that's what they have. That's what they have to work with. But I think that those scenes in particular were the ones that I felt dragged on the longest. Cause I'm like, we've seen this before. These scenes don't need to be that long. You know, maybe I would have appreciated them more if I'd rewatched the movie like you did or the first movie like you did right before this, because I know that some of them were direct callbacks to that. And, and some of them, I will admit that I'd forgotten or at least have become a little bit fuzzy on to how exactly they were calling back. But I, I just thought that those were the moments that were really repetitive. And I made me really question, like, you really didn't need extra runtime. You didn't need to do this. It didn't add anything to it. I didn't learn more about the characters because of these scenes with maybe one or two exceptions. I'm thinking particularly of the one with Bill Hader and is it Ransom? I think that, that particular scene uh, with the doors repeating itself towards the end of the movie. I thought that was as, I mean, it was again, maybe a character moment for something that comes you know right immediately after that, but I didn't really feel like it was needed. And there's a couple of scenes like that towards the end that I felt were unnecessary and really bloated the runtime. Yeah, I think there are some tone issues that also affect the scares, but yep. we'll talk about those a little bit more when we talk about some of the cast. Uh, Danny, do you have anything to to add before we get into the performances some? No, no. I mean, I agree with what you guys said. I also, I actually had not seen the first It until this week. Scott was like, Scott Harvey was like, do you want to come see It Chapter 2? And I was like, I don't know what happened, but I just never got around to seeing the first one. Um, so I watched it this week and I actually must say, Scott Sheldon, I disagree. I felt like chapter two was scarier to me 
with how many jump scares there were because those get me like even when you know it's coming yeah there were so many jump scares oh my god i find that exhausting more than scary yeah no (laughs) so I'm i'm with scott but it definitely affects people differently yeah yeah so i think that the themes were scarier in chapter one like just in general they built up pennywise's character better and he was scarier or it was scarier. But in chapter two, I think I jumped more, which obviously was like a stylistic choice of, you know, the director, the producers and everything like that. But I don't know. I think that overall, I like I said, I liked chapter one better, but I was just more scared the whole time in chapter two because I was so tense. I was like, oh, when are they going to have something else pop up at me? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a sense of dread because, because, you know, you, you've sensed it from what they've, how they, especially each time one of them happens, you know, like, you know, they're really leaning into jump scares in this one. Mm-hmm. And I, and so they're, you know, that they're going to keep doing that because uh, that's just the thing that they did. It's this, it's whether it's again, the source material, whether it's Muschietti's choice there. I, to me, I don't think that jump scares make it good horror. And ultimately I think good horror is what scares me. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, t- to your point, it's incredibly tense to the point, and I think that this goes back to the pacing issue that Scott was talking about, uh, pacing and tone issues maybe. Uh, well, tone's a separate thing, but when, you, when you're just getting nonstop jump scares, it, you never have a chance to really relax. And it felt like the middle portion of this movie was so formulaic that you knew exactly when the jump scares were going to happen. And the, the differences in the first one, just again, talk, back to, talk about the first one, you knew that they were going to come. Like at some point you were going to get those jump scares, but it's interspersed with so many different themes, particularly around bullying and, uh, and the whole coming of age theme as well, that it allowed you better pacing with, with the horror elements of the movie intermixed with that coming of age portion of it. And that this movie just lacked that a little bit and there's nothing wrong with that, but it made for a different experience. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, with that, why don't we jump into the performances? Obviously, this movie has uh, a, a big cast at the time. Uh, we didn't really know any of the actor, many of the actors. You know, Finn Wolfhard had been from Stranger Things, but um, they all killed it. Uh, but this time around, we don't have the problem of anonymity, at least with some of the big names at the top of the bill. James McAvoy, uh, Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader being the biggest names here. Bill Skarsgård also returning as Pennywise, uh, the one returning actor. Uh, in this movie, uh, Stephen King makes a nice cameo. Um, but Danny, we'll go to you first. Who of this, uh, you know, splashy cast stood out to you? Maybe someone I haven't mentioned as well. Um, who are the standout performers to you? Okay, so obviously Bill Hader was a standout. Um, Scott Harvey and I talked about this after we saw the movie together. I don't know necessarily that I thought he was a standout in a good way. Like I, I loved a lot of aspects of his performance. However, having just watched the first one, I don't think I laughed a single time during the first movie. It was just a horror movie through and through. And while I did appreciate some aspects of the comedic relief that Bill Hader brought, especially in his interactions with uh, James Ranson playing Eddie, um, I thought it was too much. I thought it was kind of like, I know that the film is dark and I guess they didn't want to like make people too sad or scared the whole time, but it was just like a couple too many comedic moments for me. Um, I really loved Jay Ryan's performance as Ben. I have seen him in like another TV show. He's not a very well-known actor, but I liked him already going in. Um, So I loved his interactions with Jessica Chastain. I thought that little romance was cute. Like for me, I'm the kind of person that's always rooting for the romance in the movie. And I was going to be so mad if she ended up with Bill, James 
McAvoy, McAvoy. McAvoy. I don't know how to say his name properly. But long story short, there was a lot of standout performances. And to me, I think that it's hard to pick just one standout because I think like Scott Shelton mentioned earlier, because there are so many characters, it was tough to see any one of them particularly developed. And while I think they all played their role very, very well, there's no one that I thought, oh, like that was a bad performance. I can't think of a single one of them that to me, I was like, oh, wow, that was the best performance. I know that a lot of people have talked about Bill Hader's being the best. And I think that if I was less put off by the amount of humor they were putting in, I probably would have said the same thing because he he was probably the most memorable performance. Um, but for me, it wasn't like the best one, if that makes sense. So, I mean, overall, though, great cast. I love their interactions. Um, but I would say that those were probably my general opinions. Mike's character, Isaiah Mustafa, was probably my least favorite out of the Losers Club. Some of his stuff, and I get, he was working with some tough material. He had a lot of the supernatural stuff and trying to sell some of that must be difficult as an actor. His parts just didn't feel quite as genuine to me throughout the entire performance. Um, so I would say that he was probably one of my, my least favorite as, as far as that group goes. But like I said, generally speaking, I thought the whole cast was phenomenal. Um, and like Scott Harvey and I talked about, the one person I actually wanted to see more of was Bill Skarsgård. I thought Absolutely. that we saw many variations of Pennywise's character without giving away spoilers. <laughs> but we didn't actually see the the clown Pennywise as much as I would have liked because I think he's so scary just in and of himself. And by not seeing that as much, I think we lost some of that theme of horror to be replaced with the jump scares like we talked about. Yeah. Uh, so I want to jump in to go off of a couple of things Danny said there. First of all, Bill Hader's performance. I, I agree with what Danny says. I think that um, the reason, and, and I think part of it is definitely the script, but it's just nonstop quips the entire time, nonstop quips for two hours and 50 minutes. And okay, the guy's a stand-up comedian, but I think there's some dark and depressing stuff in this movie. I mean, we're talking about like this really brutal, like homophobic beating scene that happens at the beginning. We have like Jessica Stain's husband literally punches her in the face. Like these are disturbing things. And it just feels wrong to be like laughing throughout this movie. And that is what people in the audience were doing. And as much as I want to fault the people in our audience because the people next to us were incredibly obnoxious, um, I don't think that they were necessarily wrong. Like personally, I thought the jokes sucked and they weren't really that funny. Um, but there were jokes, right? And even in the, you know, most scary, supposed to be the scariest parts, allegedly scariest parts at the end. Um, and it just, it ruined the tone of the movie for me uh, down the stretch. I think that, you know, we talk about how some of the scares weren't as effective, maybe because of the structure of the movie. I also think the tone played a huge role in that. Um, and Bill Hader, he tries his best. Um, he does a good job with what he's given, I think. Um, but overall, I was satisfied with the character and found him irritating by the end, to be quite frank. Um, I also thought that the relationship between him and Eddie, which like, was really underdeveloped. Like all of a sudden kind of springs up to the end of the movie. And I'm like, wait a minute, was there something I was missing here the whole time between the two of them? I don't want to say too much again, um, but I think y'all know what I'm getting at. But also to jump off of what Danny said, I think Bill Skarsgård is the best performer in the movie to me. Um, I think that I agree with with Danny that we needed more of the, the clown version of, of Pennywise. And I understand maybe why we didn't get much of that because I think 
you know, Pennywise is a projection of all of their fears and it's been 27 years since they've seen him, right? So in their minds, he has been built up to something, you know, far more spectacular probably than uh, they originally knew him as. So it makes sense that we see him in all of these really crazy, like, uh, you know, phantasmagoric forms when eventually uh, he does appear. But I do love what Bill Skarsgård does with that um, Pennywise clown character because like he's an amalgamation of, again, all of the fears and like all of the things that make, uh, you know, that are that are haunting these characters. Like in some scenes, he's like the sick, he's the sickly mother, you know, like Eddie has, like he's uh, manipulating her, manipulating them emotionally. Like I'm thinking about the scene with the little girl in the in the baseball stadium. Um, but in other scenes, he's Henry Bowers, right? He's the bully. He's calling Ben fat. He's, um, you know, picking on these guys, just like Henry Bowers and, and his crew of, uh, of misfits did. Um, and so I just, I love like the droll tone that Bill Skarsgård brought to the performance. I think he was doing something really innovative for a, a horror villain. I think horror villains, a lot of times are, you know, when we think of the iconic ones, we think of the slashers and they aren't really developed characters. I mean, like there are people in masks, um, and we usually leave it to the other characters on screen to tell us about them, uh, and about their backstory. And I thought, think that you know, in the end, when we look back at these two movies, I think one of the big takeaways will be what Bill Skarsgård brought to the role of Pennywise. Would have liked to see him bring more, but I still think what he did was was really unique. Um, and those are my takes on the cast, I guess. Scott, uh, I'll jump in now. Yeah, I think because Bill Skarsgård is the one person, I mean, of course you have all the young actors in this as well, but I think Bill Skarsgård really is the standout because his performance is so fantastic and so consistent across both films. And so I think I'd agree with both of you. He really is a presence that I don't think this movie could 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 live without. I think that he really embodies that role and plays it perfectly. I was reading some articles about kind of the method acting that he would undergo. Like he would sit in his trailer for like an hour before feeling getting himself like secluding himself and getting himself in into role, which you can understand why he would need to do that. This role is crazy. It's psycho. It's absolutely out there. The place that you have to go to be able to to reach that part of something inside of you to get that performance has to be something really special. And he was able to do it. And I think it was awesome. Uh, I do also wish that there was more of Pennywise, but I also think that I'm okay with the amount that we got because it didn't overstate its welcome. It never got old because Pennywise's stick is is kind of the same always, right? And if you got too much of it, then it might overstate its welcome, like parts of this movie do in, in other places. So I'm I'm content with wanting more and not getting more, I guess, in, in that sense. As for Bill Hader, I think this is going to be the the one sticking point that we, that we all have. I do think that uh, the bad jokes are incredibly off-putting to start with. And then I, I do really agree that their choices to include some jokes towards the end of the movie and the climactic moments really spoiled some of the emotional resonance that those that those moments could have had. That being said, I do think upon a little bit more reflection earlier on in the film, I think that the bad jokes are the point. I think we talked about characters not not growing. And I think I'm going to just go ahead and, and blame your theater. My theater was not laughing that much at Bill Hader's jokes. And I think that, in fact, the jokes are not meant to be funny. I think they're, most, they're meant to be really off-putting because this character, Richie, is it Richie? Yeah. Richie yeah. Is, is supposed to be in a place not unlike his younger version, although I think it's less it's less noticeable in the first movie i'd imagine you know you guys maybe can comment more you just saw the first movie again this past week but this is a person who hasn't grown 
from you know 27 years ago and he's dealing with things in a really unproductive way if not if anything he's grown more in a way where he's dealing with those emotions in that particular way and not dealing with them well and and trying to shove off things with jokes and i think that his jokes are not funny and i think as much as it was off-putting to me at first over the course of the movie as you see them get sprinkled in less but then for some reason come back in those climactic moments i think what you realize is that that's part of his growth right as part of his growth is not seeing is not having these jokes and being able to process emotions and these difficult things that he's dealing with in ways that are that are more productive than the jokes that he was than he was hurling as a stand-up comedian, whatever you want to say, uh, towards the beginning of the film. Again, inexplicable that they brought them back, especially in those climactic moment, moments, to spoil the tone a little bit. But I think Bill Hader absolutely does a wonderful job balancing that performance because. I don't know. Maybe I just have a special place in, in my heart for Bill Hader. I think that he's absolutely amazing in most of the stuff that I've seen him in. But he's able to deliver those jokes in an off-putting way. Like, it, it sounds like the experience that you have listening to him do these jokes is exactly the experience that I expect that Muschietti would want you having. Again, maybe I'm putting putting words in his mouth here. Maybe they're supposed to be letty. They're supposed to, they're supposed to be a balance. But I don't think this movie is trying to balance anything with the number of jump scares that it has. I'd be really surprised if this movie was trying to be funnier than the first one. I think that would be a little bit strange to me. If that's the case, I'll put my hands up and say I shouldn't have given it the benefit of the doubt here. But again, I think that it's part of it. I do agree that the relationship with Eddie is underdeveloped. And you talk about the movie already being too long and you don't understand their dynamic. And I thought, while at first I thought that was maybe because I just didn't remember remember the first movie well enough it sounds like from what you guys are saying you guys saw it a few days ago yeah. that that relationship is even from there is not developed in the way that you'd like it to be and so i definitely will defer to you guys on that one and say if that's the case then it's a little bit disappointing in that front because i think that is meant to i would argue that that is meant to be a more powerful relationship than bev's and ben's uh trajectory over the course of the film and so that's disappointing on that note. And I, I know that this isn't necessarily the performance. I mean, you talked about, is it Jay Allen who's been? Uh, Jay Ryan. Jay Ryan. Jay Ryan. You know, I think that he does a really good job of, of the people. He was the one I didn't recognize in the adult cast. And so I think it was a good kind of debut performance for me. Obviously, he's been in other things before, but being the first thing that I saw him in. I do, however, not like the note that this character ends on uh, or, or begins in, to be honest. So I guess it's not really a spoiler to say that, but you know, you talked about he's lost a lot of weight and he's this really ripped guy now. And I'll save my comments about this for the end with spoilers because it is a spoiler, yeah. I guess. I but think I know where you're going, and I I have a big with problem you. with this character. Interesting. Okay, I I think I might agree with you if I know where you're going, but you're um, probably on the same page. It's not it's not yeah, hidden yeah. in the movie. Uh, but okay, cool. Um, if we have nothing else to say about the cast. Why don't we just get right into that plot and into spoilers? Um, I think that uh, we've built things up enough. Uh, we're, you know, half hour in now. And so uh, for those who haven't seen uh, the film, um, you know, pause it, uh, skip ahead, check the time codes if you're listening on the podcast. Um, and, you know, we'll, we will dispense with the spoilers um, soon. But uh, let's get into it. Scott, I'll just go straight to you um, so you can bring up what, uh, you were just hitting at and, and maybe we can have a discussion about that. Yeah. So I think my problem is I have in, in concept, I agree with Danny that I like that Bev and Ben end up together. It's the right note more so than James McAvoy. However, the after image that this movie leaves on you is that you have to be skinny and ripped in order to yeah. get with the girl at the end. And that is a horrible, horrible message. To I leave, completely to agree with that. With. <laughs> yeah. To leave people with in 2019. So it, it goes against, sorry, just let me finish for one second. Yeah, yeah, I think sorry, it goes, go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah. It goes against a lot of the sensibilities. I think that almost every, like I would like to think that most viewers would have watching this movie. And I know that again, I imagine this is straight from the source material is how it ends up. But you know what? Take creative license and do something different with it. If you don't have the blessing of Stephen King, maybe that's another issue. But I think that it, it really sets a bad image that in order for this character to have his redemption moment to end up with Bev, that he has to have gone through this 27 year journey of becoming not the fat kid anymore. Uh, and so I just was really disappointed that that was the note that's throughout the movie. That, that's not really a character development piece because that's what we get from the start of the film. But yeah, it was a real bummer to see that even though I knew it was coming from a mile away. Can I, I Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I will say though, as much as yes, like because he is replaced, because like, you know, the chubbier, younger Ben is replaced by an older, hotter, more fit Ben. I will say that that's the image that is given. However, Bev doesn't fall in love with him in, in the yeah, older movie. I, this is what I was going to say pretty much. She fell in love with the guy who wrote her that note. Right. Who made such an impact on her. And while I do agree that because of the casting and because of, you know, the image, yes, it does seem that way. But I think she was always in love with the boy who wrote her that note. And she just didn't know who it was. I mean, obviously they had all the memory loss things. And at some point she thought that it was Bill. But I, I do think that at the heart of it, the boy that she's in love with is the boy who always cared about her. And she, when they were doing the ritual, you know, she saw that Ben still had the yearbook page that she had signed and everything like that. So I, I agree with you that I also was like, oh, kind of a bad look to say like he had to be fit to get the hot girl. But because she is in love with more of how he treated her, I didn't mind it as much. Yeah, yeah I think that's, that's a great point. And I think that's totally fair. I just wish the movie had given us the ability to see that on screen rather than have to intuit that from her actions. Mm, that's fair. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Danny. Um, like literally right out of my mouth. But um, <laughs> this is why we're good co-coaches. Um, True. I think that, uh, yeah, Scott, what you're saying is a perfectly fair takeaway from the movie. And definitely as a base concept, like, yes, I agree that uh, someone could look at this movie and think that it is sending that message. Um, I think maybe if you look at it a little bit deeper, yes, like Danny said, um, that's not the reason that she does ultimately fall in love with him. But I imagine if we're talking real world here, it doesn't hurt that that's happened. Um, okay, something else I think we should talk about before we move into wrap up uh, is the ending of the film and specifically mm -hmm. how uh, the losers defeat Pennywise, um, basically by willing him down uh, to, you know, basically nothingness, to sludge, um, making him believe that he is no longer the thing which they are afraid of. Um, and that is how they're eventually able to kill him. Uh, what do you guys think about this ending? Uh, does it tie up the themes of uh, this two-part saga nicely, or is it a little, uh, you know, eye-rolly? Uh, Scott, we'll start with you. Oh, I wasn't expecting to start first. I thought it was okay. eye-rolly. I'm sorry, guys, if you feel differently. But I was like, yeah, let's just shout. He's a clown, Tim. And uh, that was something else, I tell you. I, it was... <laughs> First off, the scene itself was super long, uh, which didn't super none of, it, long. It never does itself any favors with that, especially when the final climax. After it felt like you've had like two or three uh, climactic moments within this larger, you know, sequence. That this is the climactic moment where you then have, I think it, I think it's Mike rip his heart, like take his heart out of his chest, and they all mm -hmm. squeeze it together. No, it's, it's Eddie, right? Oh, I thought it was Bill. 
It's definitely not Eddie. It's Eddie definitely Stedman. not Eddie. Eddie, Eddie I'm sorry. Yeah, I was thinking of something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was Bill. It Maybe might have with been Mike. Been Who knows? Mike. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The, yeah. The the point is, is that it was uh it was unfortunately a really long scene and did not deliver on the promise of maybe the the other climactic moments across both films, I think, right? Like the climactic moment in the first film, I think is excellent. And unfortunately, this one doesn't get as as good a service in, in its final actual climax. And that was disappointing to me. I think that there are moments within that larger sequence that are really touching, uh, even if somewhat um, blunted by parts of the tone, parts of the fact that how long the scene was. But unfortunately, that big climax, that wasn't it. Uh, I don't, Danny, I don't know if you feel differently. No, yeah, I definitely agree. Now, I read an article. I also have not read the, the book, the original source material. But I read an article that in the book, you actually are reading the end of the first movie and the end of the second movie at the same time, if that makes but, sense. like Yeah, that's how the structure of the novel is as a whole. It bounces back and forth. So right. uh, it's different from that. It's not like split into kids and adults. Yeah, Right. So from what I understand, I think that that sort of did a disservice to the second movie because in the first, in the book, you're going to be reading that awesome first ending and kind of maybe the not as good second ending, but you're reading them at the same time. So I feel like it might might have come off better. But yeah, I agree. They had like, four pseudo endings before they had the real ending. And it's like, okay, I get it. Like, please stop faking me out. I also told Scott Harvey this, and I know that a huge part of Stephen King books and movies is the supernatural aspect. But for me, it felt like just so many supernatural aspects. Like I didn't appreciate really the whole like Native American aspect of it. I just don't think that it was necessary. And I know it was in the book. And so the movie has to, to work with what the book works with. But I felt like there were so many other supernatural aspects that they didn't need that many. And I know that they made changes from the book. And so I don't know if maybe they considered that or if they considered trying to maybe make the ending a little bit different. Like I thought it would have been perfect if I, I get that Eddie had to die like for the, you know, story. But I thought that when he shoved the thing in and he was like it kills him if you believe it does and kill like I thought that would have been a good ending I get it was probably like too good to be true and it's a horror film so there can't be the the super happy ending but yeah I completely agree with you Scott Shelton that there was just like a really long end scene and then when they're like just ah oh, you're a clown like it just felt so like I almost started laughing because it was just really really cheesy I felt like when they were saying, oh, we have to make him get small so we can get him. If they had actually gone into the small part of the cave and then killed him, like that might have been a better ending. Again, I don't know exactly how the book ending works. I read like some of an article the other day, but I don't know. I, I just, long story short, I completely agree with you, Scott Shelton, that the ending left much to be desired. Yeah. So I think that on paper, again, these things work. Um, at least for me, they do. I, I like, I like the idea of them having to get their tokens and, you know, put them all in, destroy all their tokens. I think that works, but I think the part that doesn't work is like you're saying, Danny, the whole ritual background and all of that, I feel like was just an unnecessarily messy way, uh, for us to get to, oh, we have to get these tokens. Um, and you know, not, not really rooted in reality, which I think a lot of the movie, although it does have, you know, a lot of supernatural elements of Pennywise, I think. The, the core of the movie is rooted in reality. And again, th themes about small town America and violence and stuff like that. Um, 
And so that that did uh, that did catch me off guard a little bit. I, it was a little bit off putting. And then I don't even necessarily have a problem with the idea of them, you know, willing Pennywise down to size and then killing him. I think it could be a really powerful moment where all of the characters come together and say, hey, you know, this is it. Like, this is our last stand. We're not afraid of you anymore. Like, um, we've been through all of this together um, and we're going to come together to, to finish off Pennywise once and for all. I think that that's fine. But again, I think the execution of it is bad because of the... The tonal problems that we've already talked about because we've had joke it's been really jokey leaning up to this um i think that yeah it does feel kind of corny and cheesy and a little like are we supposed to laugh here and and you know just like you said the idea of them just screaming you're a clown you're a clown like i think there's a more artful way that you can do that um and i think that it was too on the nose too um you know hitting you over the head with the hammer to work. So I think, I, I mean, I, I really do. One of my takeaways is that I really do think Muschietti is a really good filmmaker um, based on these two movies. But some of the directorial choices, some of the, the choices in the script here, I think uh, blunted the effect of what could have been some powerful scenes. I, I think that's a really good point. I think that it's, I think it's almost undeniable that Muschietti has like a lot of craft. I think he just needed to be reined in a little bit more. Yeah. Again, he had a lot of material to work from with an 800, 900 page book, even across what ostensibly was like a five to six hour movie in total. But he has a lot of ideas. And I think you even saw this in his other movie as well, which I'm forgetting the name of. But he has a lot of ideas in a great directorial vision. He just needs someone to either a better editor or a better like a better producer to kind of pare him down a little bit. I'm sure Stephen King was loving how much time his book was getting. So he probably wasn't someone who was going to pare him down too much, but you know, I I'm intrigued because his next movie is going to be the flash. If someone at DC is going to rein him in because you know, they've, they've let their directors get the better of themselves in their extended universe. And especially in a couple of movies so far. So I like Muschietti. I like what he's doing. This is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. He probably did better in it, Chapter One, and I think I think the Flash could be a good uh, evolution for him as someone with you know a little bit tighter source material, or maybe a, in some ways maybe even a little bit more creativity involved with it, and uh, and especially uh, and a lot more effects too, as well. I'm I think that he does a, a good job here, but he probably could have been helped out a little bit more by you know his uh, editors and his production company. Mm, I agree. Yeah. Well, guys, you know, on Pet Cemetery, we had a little bit of a spirited debate, I think. But uh, this time, it seems like we're all kind of on the same page, which I have to say, it feels nice. Uh, for it Hader. feels like feels like we're our own little losers club here. Um, so Aww. shout out to us. Yeah, I've um, been that way for 24 years. Let's go. Yeah, same. Um, let's be real. Okay, guys, with that, I think we can move up into our wrap up phase now. Um, I'll go to Scott first because Danny... Uh, you may not know this is coming since it's uh, it's something we do on every episode. But um, favorite scene or moment, I'll give you some time to think of yours, Danny. Scott, uh, do you got one? Yeah, I think I do have one. I, you know, it, it's fitting because I, you know, I said that I really liked Bill Skarsgård and I really liked Ben Hader. So I'm going to pick a moment that they have. And it is Bill Hader's token scene. I think that that scene with Paul Bunyan, the Paul Bunyan statue is really cool. I think that not not just in the fact that he has a giant Paul Bunyan statue chasing him and trying to stab him with a pitchfork or whatever whatever the heck he was holding. Uh, uh, I can't remember what it is right now. But 
I also think that the effect, and even though it was in the trailer, I believe, of, and even in the first movie too, probably, but the 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 effect or the visual moment of Pennywise, like, I don't know, like leaping, jumping down from his little perch with the balloons and floating down to the ground to meet kind of Bill Hader face to face. I think that is, I don't know, there's something I just found really captivating about that visual. And I know that's a minor moment in the film overall, but I think that really speaks to that craft that Muschietti has and that vision that Muschietti has uh, that I was just talking about. And, and that is a moment where you get kind of, you know, those two actors that I really thought crushed it in this movie, uh, particularly. And then that that vision of, of a type of horror that I think everyone wants more of, right? Like as much as there are a lot of jump scares in this film, I think there are moments where this movie does fit into that newer category of horror or newer spin of horror that I think that really captivates me more. Your, your Midsommars, your Quiet Places, your Get Outs, your Uses. I think that the, there are flickers of that in even in it, it, both chapter one and chapter two, even though it's a classic horror uh, novel from Stephen King. And I, and I really appreciate that from Ruschietti. All right, Danny, favorite scene or moment? I actually did remember this from last time. So I thought about it before coming on. Oh, sorry. I, sh I should have given oh. you more credit. No, I, I've gone first for most of our discussion points here. So I'm glad you had Scott Shellen go first. But um, my favorite scene was actually when they were at the Chinese restaurant at the mm -hmm. beginning. Because we're, we're although, so like, on the same wavelength here. Yeah. So like, okay, I get it. it's a horror film and I'm supposed to be loving the horror parts and stuff. And there, there were great parts that made me very scared. But I love seeing the whole cast interact. Like you said, Scott Harvey, part of what was not as great about the middle of the film was that all the great actors and actresses that we liked seeing interact or actress, I should say, they didn't have a lot of ladies, but uh, <laughs> Jessica Chastain is just such an uh, uh, entity, such a performance that she seems like more than one woman, but um, <laughs> she's enough lady to go around in this movie. She is. She definitely is. But I just loved that scene. I loved watching them interact. And then I did like the scary tone that it took when, you know, we all know already what has happened to Stanley, but they don't. And they're opening the fortune cookies and they're seeing what had happened. And like, I, I just thought that was like this kind of perfect blend. And at that point I liked Bill Hader's jokes and I thought the humor was appropriate because they were kind of bringing back in, letting us re-see who this older character is and I just really, really liked the visuals of that scene. And then like, as the horror started becoming crazier and crazier, and I knew at some point that the staff of the restaurant was going to come out and be like, what the heck are you crazy psychos doing? And it was perfect to me. I thought that that scene was just like perfectly executed. I really liked it. And I also love that aspect, like I said, of we as the audience already know what has happened to Stanley, but I kind of liked having that like look behind the curtain as the characters discovered it as well. So that was my favorite scene of the movie. Yeah, I really like that scene a lot too. And I, I do like the horror elements of it as well. Cause I think, so I think we have flirted with, but not really talked about is that uh, this movie for a blockbuster is weird. And I like that. I like that, that this movie is not afraid to do some really weird things in the horror sequences. And I think this is a great example with these like fortune cookies and like these deformed bugs coming out of them and flying all over the place. Uh, that was creative and weird. And I, I like that for, for what is a blockbuster horror movie. Uh, so I like that. But for the sake of being different, I will say I did like the last five minutes or so. Uh, we have Mike reading a letter. We see him drive through Derry. And I think one particular moment that stands out to me when he looks in the store window and we see the reflection of the kids uh, in the store window. Um, 
that was great. I thought that that was a really nice nostalgic moment to tie me back to, again, the first movie, which I liked more. Maybe that's why I really liked the shot. But, um, you know, at that point, we have spent um, a solid five, five and a half hours with these characters. Um, and it feels right to, to go back to the beginning there at the end um, and, and see how far that they've come uh, over the course of that five and a half, six hours or so. Um, and so I, I, I really enjoyed that moment. Uh, and I think that the, the movie ends in general on a nice uh, nostalgic note. So I appreciated that. All right, guys, let's put a score on it out of 10. Danny, we'll start with you. Uh, give this a score out of 10. You can use decimals, 100 points. Go. I think I would give it an 8.7. Whoa. Um, yeah, I know that it's hot. I know that I was very critical of a lot of aspects of it. <laughs> But generally speaking, I just loved the first one so much that while there were aspects of the second one that I did not like, I felt like it it carried on enough of the the sentiment of the first one. And the, there were some really still great performances like we talked about. So I think that I, I probably am going to say that in a few days, I'll think that it's a little lower than an 8.7. But right now I feel good about that number. Plus, I think I gave Pet Cemetery like a high seven, low eight. And I did like this more than that. So I'm trying to go, I'm trying to be consistent in my own scoring here. So for right now, I'm an 8.7. I think you are actually the lowest score on Pet Cemetery, if I remember correctly. So, I was, but it was um, still... It was still, I think, high seven, low eight. And I, I, I like it. I did not more. give that movie I was a high seven was in or a low eight. On that, I think. Yeah, um, no, I did not I, give I that a high seven. I think this is where I'm, I'm standing. You're fine. No, stick to your guns. You feel it's an 8.7? It's an 8.7. That's totally fine. Definitely I'm a little bit surprised. In... I'm a little bit surprised based on what you're saying in the review, but that's awesome. Definitely has something in common with our other favorite guest, Jay. That's for sure. <laughs> when it comes to scoring the movies. Yeah, um, hit home okay. runs on every movie. <laughs> well, I don't have as many to compare it to. So rather the clones. 7.1. Uh, all right, Scott. Unreal. What's your score? I'm giving it a 7.2. I, I actually, I, I, I like this movie the more that I get away from it. I wonder if I'd go even higher uh, with more removed. But it's a long movie to experience. And so I, I can't give it too high of a score because of that. It's hard to get through those things. There are tonal issues. But the good thing, I think this is a good thing about the movie. And, and I'm starting to understand why I got a B-plus cinema score is that I think that there are really po like really positive notes and really strong performances that stick with you that might even overcome some of the more negative things. Scott, I know that you might feel differently. It sounds like some of those negative things spoiled some parts of the movie more for you than for others. But I'm going with a 7.2, and I really like this movie a lot. Yeah, I definitely understand why it's playing with audiences. I mean, to your point, my roommate went to see it today. He has been reading the book. Uh, he was really excited to see it. I told him, he asked me what I thought, and I was like, you know, I kind of agree with what the reviews are saying, but he actually came back and he thought it was incredible. So he really enjoyed the movie. So I, I, I mean, I see why audiences are enjoying it. I think if you enjoyed the first film, I can't see you not enjoying at least parts of the second film. Uh, but I am going to be the grouch this time around. I think maybe the problems just resonated a little bit more with me than uh, with you guys. So I'm going with a 6.7. So not too much lower, but um, okay. 6.7. Uh, it's a solid movie. If you Again, if you like the first, you should definitely see it. Yeah, I thought you were going to go lower than that. So it makes my it makes my heart a little bit warmer that you you stayed higher oh, than I thought yeah. you would. Wait, but I'm confused, Scott. You told me that in your grand ranking, it's above Pet Cemetery, and I thought you gave Pet Cemetery a higher score. I think you're making up what we gave Pet Cemetery. I have to go back and check. I'll check it now, after this. Okay, I I actually do think Danny is right about that. Um, okay, I've got the I scores right here. So I think this is one of those things where I 
think that uh, Pet Cemetery is a better film, but mm -hmm. I enjoy It Chapter Two like a little bit more, maybe. Okay, yeah, so I, I gave it a seven. Higher on my list. I gave it a seven. Uh, Pet Cemetery, that is, and Scott gave it a seven point seven. So you're right about that one. I think that um, this is a movie that, to Scott's point, I'm gonna like more than it necessarily is good, and mm -hmm. I think that's because it has a lot of goodwill from the first movie. And some of the, the things that stick with me more from films, I would say, on you know, on average, uh, this thing gets right, this movie gets right, and some of the other stuff that doesn't get right. Fair enough. <laughs> I agree. All right, guys. Well, that should just about do it for our discussion of It Chapter 2. Uh, when we come back after the break, we got a little bit of news and trailer talk before we close out. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott and Danny, before we close out today's episode, uh, just a few news items and trailer talk to get to. Let's talk about what went down at D23. Um, a lot of big news at the Disney conference, um, Star Wars, Marvel, the like. Uh, particularly in the Star Wars area, we got uh, some big uh, announcements. The Obi-Wan series is now confirmed with Ewan McGregor starring. Uh, this series will be set. Um, sometime after revenge of the sith obviously there's a lot of time that passes between revenge of the sith and a new hope we see obi-wan as an old man in a new hope so i'm excited to learn about uh what happens with obi-wan in uh this time period because you know at the end of revenge of the sith there is that hint of, of yoda talking to, to obi-wan about how oh i can get in touch with qui-gon so maybe we're going to see qui-gon i don't know that we're going to see liam neeson return necessarily but uh, maybe we will get some version of Qui-Gon, and that interests me because I do love that character. So that excites me, Scott. Also in the Star Wars area, Mandalorian trailer uh, dropped, and uh, the internet really blew up over this thing, and it, it's easy to see why. Uh, this trailer uh, is awesome. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a pretty dark tone for a Star Wars uh, show, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's going to be dropping as soon as Disney Plus launches in November. Uh, so we got that, and then finally in the Star Wars realm, New Rise of Skywalker trailer, Scott. This is probably the thing that everyone was talking about, particularly because of a, a particular image in the trailer where we see Rey with a double-bladed uh, red lightsaber. Um, the the dark Rey theories have been going off on Twitter. Um, I don't think we want to dive too deeply into our conspiracy theories on, on that, Scott. You can if you want to. Uh, but what are your takeaways from all of the Star Wars news that we got out of D23? Yeah, the Star Wars news is good stuff, right? Ewan McGregor coming back. We are, you know, of the listeners who will who will tune into the Star Wars series that we do starting next month in October will will learn that we really like Ewan McGregor in the prequel trilogy. And so to to see that he's coming back to get his own six or eight episode miniseries, whatever it ends up being over at Disney Plus, it's awesome, right? That's you know, almost as much airtime, if not more, if you, if you actually just count his time on screen, then you probably get in the prequel trilogy, which is awesome and insane to think about. You know, whether or not we see Qui-Gon Jinn return in, in, in that illusion that you're talking about from Revenge of the Sith, I don't know. But you know what? Disney has a lot of money to throw at these things. And if they want Liam Neeson to come back and play Qui-Gon Jinn, Liam Neeson will get enough money to come back and play Qui-Gon Jinn. So, right. yeah, we'll, we'll see if that happens. We have no idea what direction that story is going to go. But all we know is that Ewan McGregor is going to get his Obi-Wan series, and I couldn't be more excited uh, about that for sure. 
when it comes to the Mandalorian, I'm totally on board. One of the things that I really like that you didn't that you didn't necessarily mention is that we learned whether it was at D23 or around D23 that Disney Plus is not going to be taking the Netflix approach to you know mass yeah. dropping content onto their platform. They're going to be taking the HBO approach uh, and the broadcast television approach of doing one episode per week, which I think is great. I think it's awesome. What Netflix is doing is clearly resonates with a lot of people in uh, in you know, who are watching their content, who's watching their content. But for me, these, you know, I, my biggest fear was that Game of Thrones, for example, might be the last big event show that we ever get on television that, you know, every single week you don't get this build up. You know, we got that a little bit with Big Little Lies after Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. but it's so good to see that on Disney Plus, you're Euphoria, going to get yeah, that. season two. What, what'd you say? I just, I was just hyping. I want Euphoria season two to be the next one, but yeah, sure. You know, fair enough. Right. As well. But it's so exciting to see that something like the Mandalorian and these other Disney plus Marvel series are going to be getting episodic releases every single week to get more of that shared experience of watching those, you know, whether it's, you know, every Sunday night at nine or whatever day that it is, right. Getting to see that together as a group of people and, and get hyped and see Twitter just explode over it all at one time. I think that that's awesome. And that's maybe even the best news as much as that trailer was awesome in and of itself. Like I thought that Mandalorian trailer was great and I'm just more excited to, uh, about that. And then finally dark red, we don't have to dive too much deep. It is probably, probably could be its own podcast on its own, but I am buying some of the theories around dark Ray and, or maybe just Ray in general. Cause there's different takes on one particular theory about Ray being a clone or at least dark Ray being a clone that I, that I very much subscribe to. I, I buy into it. We've seen it in adjacent star Wars media and novels. Uh, we've seen this idea of of clones and related to uh, the Emperor uh, Emperor Palpatine before, so I'm not going to all be surprised if that's the direction it goes. Because it was shown in a trailer, it's not going to be something that's the biggest spoiler of all time. JJ's not going to throw something in the trailer uh, yeah. that is going to spoil Act Three of the movie. That would be insane. That would be absolutely insane if that happened. And I really trust that he wouldn't he wouldn't let that happen. I know that he doesn't ultimately have probably control over what goes into a trailer. But I think he probably has enough control and people over at Lucasfilms have enough control still um, to be able to prevent something like that from happening because we see that a lot in movies. But uh, I, I think that they're smarter th than that. So that's my thoughts on the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, Scott, I think that, you know, obviously I love, 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 love Star Wars and so do you. But I'm not one of these fans who's like, no, no, no Dark Ray. Like I'm opposed to this. This will destroy everything that they've set up. I think if you make a good movie, if you make me believe it, then I'm here for it. I just want a good movie. Like Last Jedi for me, like I know people had issues with it because of, uh, you know, certain, they didn't like how Luke was portrayed. And, and um, you know, there are obviously a lot of other issues, but I just want to see a good movie. And The Last Jedi was a great movie. So I, uh, I really did enjoy it. I'm not one of these pure, like super purists when it comes to Star Wars. Um, and so I'm excited to see, I, I agree with you that I don't think, we are going to see a dark ray, um, but I'm excited to see what JJ has in store. Like, I, I really just can't wait to see this film. Uh, Scott, I'll throw it to you uh, for this, though, since you are our resident Marvel expert. What are uh, any of your standouts from the Marvel news that we got at D23? Yeah, I think we were a little bit more limited on the Marvel news, to be honest. The things that I'd rather talk about is actually on the Disney side. Uh, okay. or maybe more specifically the Pixar side. But for the Marvel points, to your point, getting the release date for Black Panther 2 in 2022 was awesome. We knew it was coming already. It was teased at San Diego Comic-Con, but knowing that it's going to be that first movie in Phase 5 or that first movie that we get in 2022, at least it seems that way, uh, is really exciting. Ryan Coogler uh, coming back. I love Ryan Coogler. 
I wish that we could have Michael B. Jordan back in that, but still, uh, Black Panther was one of my favorite movies from from 2018. So couldn't be more excited about about that coming out in 2022. Even though it is, you know, two and a half years away, two hour, two two years and eight months away, whatever it is. Uh, still good good to see that. Also, knowing that we're going to get even more Disney Plus series, we're getting like Moon Knight, She Hulk. There's one other one that I'm forgetting right now. Mi- oh, Miss uh, Miss Marvel. Miss Marvel, yeah. Yeah, Miss Marvel. So those are all really exciting things. And I think those are technically going to be part of Phase 4. So we're getting a little bit of a light rollout at the beginning in the first year, but it's really going to ramp up in that second and third year. And that's exciting uh, just from a content perspective for Disney+. Plus. Now, for me, the two things that I really do want to mention here on the Disney on the Disney or and Pixar side of things is that the first look at Cruella, specifically uh, the image of Emma Stone as Cruella DeVille, I think that's awesome. Did not even know about that project really. I knew it existed, but I didn't realize that it was uh, something they would be showing at a place like D23. And I think that Emma Stone as Cruella is something different than we've seen from Emma Stone and really exciting. And then the other part, Scott, I know you're less maybe less of a Pixar fan than I am. I don't know. Maybe we can duke that out on, on another episode. But Pete Doctor's next movie, we got a little bit uh, called Soul, which is coming out in summer next year. We got a little bit more details about it. obviously his last movie, Inside Out, was one. It was one of my favorite movies of the of the decade, and it was in my top twenty when we talked about it last week. And so, getting his next movie, Soul, with Jamie Fox and Tina Fey being the two leads in that movie, got me more excited just to even see the concept art. Right, we're not getting too much yet, but those are the two things uh, that are outside of the Star Wars and Marvel universe that got me really excited. D twenty three and. It, Things that I weren't expecting to see. Yeah. Um, I like Pixar. You know, I have my favorites and, and least favorites, as anyone does, I think. Um, so I, I'm definitely a, a little bit more excited about Soul than I am about Onward, which is the other uh, movie we're going to get early next year. I haven't loved what I've seen from that so far. But uh, Danny, I'll ask you, since I know you're a uh, you're a Marvel fan as well. We need to see Endgame together, of course. Uh, what are you looking forward to in the next phase of uh, Marvel movie, of MCU movies or TV shows? Oh, that's tough. There's so many things. Um, I really, really like, I know you guys talked about this a couple episodes back, but um, I love Scarlet Witch in the Marvel movies. So I'm really excited for her series on Disney plus. Um, I think that that's going to be awesome. I liked vision too. So however much he's going to be involved, if he is, I'm excited about, I'm excited to see her in Dr. Strange, pretty much just like a big, big fan of her character. I think her powers are so cool. And so I'm excited to see more of an exploration of that. Um, that Dr. Strange movie is going to be a horror movie. So we're going to have to have you on for that one, obviously. So I'm more than happy to join. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm very excited too about um, Black Panther 2. Totally agree with Scott that it was, it's a travesty that Michael B. Jordan can't come back, but I'm sure that we probably have like different motivations for that. Um, <laughs> I really, I'm not really sure that our motivations are different on that. <laughs> um, I think they are. <laughs> What'd you say? I'm saying, I think they are. <laughs> um, the last movie that I'm very, very excited about Oh, I love Scarlett Johansson. Super excited about Black Widow, especially because there are so many question marks right now about like, is it a prequel? Is it she's still alive on Dormir? Like all that crazy stuff. So I'm super, super excited about that one as far as like plot wise. But I think I'm most excited to watch Elizabeth Olsen reprise uh, Scarlet Witch. So that's my coverage of the Marvel stuff for now. I'm with you on on WandaVision, especially now that it sounds like it's going to be a sitcom, which is kind of weird, but or have a sitcom vibe to it. But we'll see how that goes. Um, that makes me less excited, just to put my two cents. Yeah, in, whatever. <laughs> that makes me less excited too. But hopefully they they 
really put a new spin on the sitcom genre. Yeah, no, I, I'm interested to see something different. So we'll see. Uh, okay, that's the D23 news. Scott, let's talk a little bit of tra a, a couple trailers before we go. Um, we'll start with a couple that just you and I have seen, and then we'll finish with one that uh, we've all three seen. Uh, so let's start with Waves, which is uh, another A23, A23, A24 movie. Uh, it's a little bit worse than A24, A23. Uh, A24 movie that we're going to be getting uh, later this year. Uh, Trey Edward Schultz. He, this is his third film. He's done all of them with A24, Cretia, and It Comes at Night, his first two, of course. Um, and this is a sort of coming-of-age family drama. Um, gives me a little bit of a Barry Jenkins feel in the trailer, I will say. Um, but starring Sterling K. Brown, uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who we just saw in Loose Scott. I, and we haven't talked about that movie, but he was phenomenal in that film. Uh, one of the best performances of the year for me. Um, yeah. And also... Um, who am I forgetting? Alexa Demi from um, from Euphoria is also going to be in this movie. Scott, I did not know a thing about this movie. I haven't seen Trey Edward Schultz's other movies. I know I need to watch It Comes at Night. I think I'd really like it. Uh, but after this trailer, this movie looks fantastic. Yeah, it does. It's definitely one that I'm really looking forward to. I love Sterling K. Brown. I wish we'd seen more of him in Black Panther, just to touch on that note, uh, going back to Black Panther from a second ago. But Kelvin Harrison Jr., amazing and loose I, you know that movie wasn't a perfect movie i i was so hyped for it that it, i had a, such a high bar for it which is my own fault but i still loved it nevertheless i i'm still thinking about that movie even though i saw it like three or four weeks ago at this point and yeah i'm, I'm very excited about this film it was not on my radar at all and, and to know that it's coming out in the next couple months is extremely exciting the trailer doesn't show you too much other than you know what the feel of the movie is the color palette looks really interesting uh, for for the type of film that it is, the kind of almost Florida project like color palette of it, Scott. I don't know. At least that's yeah, the vibe I that I got. Maybe that was what was kind of giving me very Jenkins vibes a little bit. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's fair. Well. Right, exactly, exactly to your point. Because if Bill Street could talk with such a colorful and bright movie and, um, and Moonlight, I know you haven't seen it, but yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that one, so it's hard hard for me to speak to that. But yeah, I'm really excited about this film, and what a surprise! H24 mm -hmm. has it, and it looks interesting. Yeah. Uh, nothing but bangers over there. Okay, Scott. Um, NBB, it, nothing but bangers. <laughs> NBB, that's right. Uh, maybe they should just change the name of the studio to that. Um, <laughs> Scott, we'll continue the enthusiastic praise now with our next trailer. Uh, another movie that I am so looking forward to and a trailer that uh, is getting me so hype, and that is the trailer for Jojo Rabbit, the new film from Taika Waititi. Um, Scott, we, we this is the second trailer, of course. The first trailer, um, you know, we we liked the look of it, but didn't show too much. This trailer we got definitely more of a feel for the movie. We got a better look at Sam Rockwell, Scarlett Johansson, of course, Taika Waititi himself playing Hitler. Uh, we also got our first look at uh, Thomas imaginary and friend Hitler. To be clear, imaginary yeah. friend Hitler, not real Hitler. We we got our first look at Thomas and McKenzie, who is playing uh, a Jewish girl that our our main character. I don't know the actor's name, but he uh, he encounters, um, and that seems to be what is driving some of the plot of the movie. Um, and that's not really something that we knew about beforehand. But Scott, I think that this movie looks so good. The tone of the movie is going to be really interesting. Definitely a little bit of Inglorious Bastards vibes, which you know, I, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be a, a Tarantino-like movie, but the tone with which it is taking on World War II, I think, is somewhat similar to the tone that took on, uh, that Tarantino took on in Inglorious Bastards. So that gets me excited. Um, I just think this looks like a really original and possibly like really powerful movie. So I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah, Roman Griffin Davis is the main character. Yeah. And yeah, this film looks great. I mean, we talked for like 15 minutes about how much we'd hate Disney if they did something stupid with this film. But yeah, coming from Fox Searchlight, they're always good uh, for, for whatever they're they're putting out, really. I mean, they had Ready or Not just a couple weeks ago, which we both saw, but we haven't talked about that we both loved. This obviously very different, taking taking a historical aspect. But, you know, you talk about getting vibes of Barry Jenkins in the last film. This film gives me vibes of Wes Anderson and sure. in all in all the right ways, right? It checks all the boxes for me. I think that I really liked this trailer for exactly what you were talking about, giving us a better sense of what we're going to be experiencing the film, what the point of the film was, what was the what's the background of it. We still don't know exactly where the film is going and that's a good thing and I would I wouldn't expect them to reveal that. But to know that Thomas E. McKenzie, or get, to getting to see Thomas E. McKenzie's character, and not just you know Roman Griffin Davis and Taika Waititi, which is the majority of the of kind of the teaser. I don't even think it was a full length trailer that we got. But to, to see to get that additional color, that additional context for the film, to also see you know what the setup is: Scarlett Johansson, Sam Rockwell, this you know this kid who is trying to be a Nazi but is conflicted. It's really interesting. Obviously obviously going to be huge satire and it's exactly the kind of movie that we need to our point from the last time we had this kind of news segment on the podcast that you know we're getting deprived of right now because of you know particular circumstances and i'm all all on board for this yeah scott i think when people saw this first trailer they were kind of confused like what is this movie with this silly goofy looking hitler character um but I think that this trailer definitely gave us a better vibe. Like you said, it's going to be a satire. Uh, you know, there's this whole part, you know, introducing the Thompson McKenzie character. There's this whole line that one of the main character's friends says to him about like, you know, how would you know if you saw a Jew? What if they look just like you? I think that's probably going to be a major idea in the movie. Um, and so, yeah, I can't couldn't be more excited for this movie. Um, all right, let's move to the final trailer. One that we all saw this play before it chapter two, at least for me and Danny, it did. Um, this is a, another Blumhouse production. Talking of studio, talking of another studio that we could qualify as NBB, probably uh, nothing but bangers. Um, that would be uh, Blumhouse because they uh, they've really been crushing it recently. Um, and this Black Christmas is, of course, a remake of a 1974 movie, I believe. Uh, there have actually been a lot of remakes. I was going to say, yeah, there's been a more recent remake than this. 2006, I think, was maybe the most recent one, but there's been several remakes. However, from what I know of the original, it looks like this movie is going to be taking on a bit of a different vibe than the original, which I think takes place. I could be completely wrong about this. And if so, edit it out, please. But um, no way. Uh, I uh, I think the original takes place like all in one night in this sorority house. But here it looks like we're spanning several days. Maybe there's like more of an indictment of like the school that uh, it, like the school certainly seems to play more of a role in this movie than maybe in the original Black Christmas. Um, but this is going to be directed by Sophia Tikal, who made this movie called Always Shine, which is a really good movie. Um, I'm not sure that either of y'all have seen it, but you should check it out. Um, and starring Imogen Poots, someone who I'm a big fan of uh, from the one of the best shows ever that got canceled way too soon roadies um and some other movies like green room but um this looks like a really fun slasher we don't get a lot of horror movies at christmas um and so i think this could be a really cool addition to the holiday movie season danny do you agree yes first of all there's nothing but bangers <laughs> acronym has me crying for no reason yeah, there's there's gonna be a really weird sound, and and when Scott was saying that, that I will not be able to edit out. So. I'm sorry, I snort when I laugh, guys. Please ignore it. But okay, first of all, I love love slasher films. I've 
always loved slasher films. To me, those used to be the only ones that would scare me because ghost films, like it's not real. And I, I, at least I don't believe in ghosts and more supernatural stuff. It just never scared me because I knew it couldn't happen. But a slasher can happen. Somebody can go crazy and come and stab people. And I love that aspect of it. I also love the kind of like cliche aspects that come with, you know, the college based slasher films. I love the kind of, I'm sure it might have not as many of the kind of like uh, comedy horror as like the Scream franchise, for example. I know I brought that up last time I was on here, but it's one of my favorites. But um, I don't think it, the trailer did not make it seem like there would be those comedy aspects, but I feel like just by it being in the sorority house based around Greek life, there's probably going to be at least some of that aspect, or at least I'm hoping for some of that aspect. Um, so I was really excited about the trailer. Scott and I were like whispering in the theater, Scott Harvey and I were whispering about how we were excited about that film. Um, so as to not disturb other viewers, unlike our, our fellow viewers mm -hmm. in the in the film but uh yeah i'm very very excited about it i didn't really recognize any of the characters like the the main actors which is typical with a horror film and so i'm kind of excited to maybe see how these breakout performances or what will hopefully be breakout performances uh blossom into the film yeah one of the things that i that i love about what blumhouse is doing is that you will sometimes get known actors in minor roles or supporting roles but they're almost always giving new actors and up-and-coming actors and actresses the slots at the at the center point in, of the film that you know maybe other studios wouldn't take the same risks on i don't know but I, it's also how they keep their budget down probably but it works and and these actors and actresses usually crush it in those roles and so yeah i i echo what you said, Danny, I think this trailer looks really interesting. Slasher is a genre that I do like in the horror genre. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the supernatural horror, which is ironic since we just talked about a supernatural horror film to some extent. But, you know, the slasher film is one that I can always get on board for. I enjoyed Halloween, the remake. Well, I shouldn't say remake, but a uh, retcon sequel of Halloween from Who last knows year. what it's considered, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I enjoyed that and I'm on board for this. I think Halloween probably has some input from, did that have a Blumhouse influence as well? I can't remember. Yeah, it was produced by Blumhouse, yeah. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. So yeah, I'm very excited about about this as well and couldn't, um, just ready for it. You know, it, it, it's also nice, I was listening to Movie Talk, a Collider show the other day, and they were talking about how it's nice that a Christmas movie is actually going to be released in December rather than November. So that's huh. another cool thing. This is releasing, I think, the week before episode nine, think, so a couple weeks before. You don't think Christmas. Cats is going to be a Christmas movie? Yeah, I'll take a soft pass on talking about Cats. All right. Fair enough. Um, okay. Uh, and I should say for context, since we've referenced it a couple of times, the people next to us, the most obnoxious thing that they did during the movie was that uh, during one of the scary scenes where Pennywise is counting down one, two, three, when it, he got to two, this person yells out loudly in a crowded theater, boo. And it was so annoying. Um, is that better or worse than like chicken wings with like honey mustard sauce or something? <laughs> Yeah, that was at a quiet place. That's pretty bad too. But um, well, I also had yeah. that before Captain Marvel. Didn't, didn't I think I talked about that? Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but nothing tops when Scott Harvey and I saw Avengers Endgame, and there was a oh, crying yeah. baby the whole time. I'm sorry, I will never forgive that mother for bringing the baby to that. And, and this was the thing. This was the thing about the crying baby too. They it they kept having issues. They took it out a couple of times, and. Then finally they took it out. They were gone. We we're like, okay, we'll never see them. An hour and a half later, they come back in. Like an hour and a half later, like the battle is happening at the end. Like they would have to have had no idea what was going on in the film. And so, yeah, 
Um, but anyway, rant over. What a weird experience. Um, it was strange. <laughs> I, I, with now that I'm off my soapbox, I think we can finish out this episode as like it, Scott. Uh, I want to don't worry, guys, all our listeners are gone already. <laughs> I was about to say, no, that you'll never hear any of this anyway because Scott's going to edit it out, but um. Thank you. That should do it for this week's episode. Scott, uh, or we'll go to Danny first. Danny, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Um, my Twitter is very inactive. I that's prefer true, yes. I prefer Instagram followers. It's a dkunk. So that's a D as in Danny, K as in koala, U-N-K-K. <laughs> that's my Instagram. We, we got there eventually, people. I'm on Facebook too if you want to follow me there, but Instagram is my most active form of social media. Don't friend her, just follow her on Facebook. I'll follow back. <laughs> At this rate, you're never going to hear from me on the podcast again. So, got to make a strong plug for no, some followers. We need someone to hear to laugh at our jokes, honestly. I, otherwise, it's just like an empty echo chamber. But, uh, <laughs> Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At SShelton2013. And I'm at Scarby Dent. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support our show, don't forget about our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash pods. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay too. We would still love if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode in which we will we'll be reviewing the Donna Tart adaptation, The Goldfinch. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton and Danny Kunkel, we will see you next time. Thank you.